Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm your host, Ben Allen. It's been a colorful, drama-filled, and sometimes wacky last couple of weeks as candidates try to make their case to voters ahead of Election Day this coming Tuesday. Polls have largely held steady, but some races have tightened. Here to break it all down for us are two political experts, Steve Kornacki and Christina Greer. Steve Kornacki is the news editor for Salon. He's previously written about politics for the New York Observer and Roll Call, and his work has also appeared in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and on the Daily Beast. Steve Kornacki, good to have you on Fordham Conversations. Oh, happy to be here. And Christina Greer is an assistant professor of political science at Fordham University Lincoln Center. Her research and teaching focus on American politics, black ethnic politics, urban politics, quantitative methods, and public opinion. Professor Christina Greer, welcome to Fordham Conversations. Thanks for having me. So, both of you, I'd like to first start with the New York governor's race. We've had a Democrat frontrunner for much of this race, Attorney General Andrew Cuomo. In this race, what are the themes that really jump out at you? I would say in terms of the, the theme, I don't, know, I don't know if you'd call it a theme, but it's, it's just sort of the, uh, I don't know the best way to put it, the fringiness of, of, of Carl Palladino. You know, he's just created so many sort of, I guess, distracting headlines, you know, with, with provocative statements, with provocative antics, um, antics that have, um, you know, really, I think, dominated coverage. If you ask sort of a random person about the New York governor's race, I think they might be more likely at this point to, to start talking about Carl Palladino uh, than Andrew Cuomo. Um, and, and not necessarily for good reasons as far as, uh, you know, Palladino is concerned. When you're running against, you know, a guy like Andrew Cuomo whose approval rating is, is over 70% or around 70% was always going to be extremely tough to beat, uh, for the Republicans. Um, you know, I think just any chance that Palladino had, I think, was, was sort of squandered with, uh, with just far too many headlines that made voters far too uneasy about him. And, and I think, uh, it, it created a situation where he really can't win. Christina, what have you seen? I agree with Steve. I mean, Palladino created nothing but distracting headlines, right? So sometimes, you know, any news is good news for a candidate. But in this case, it was just story after story of shenanigans, right? Um, but what I think we are seeing slowly but surely, if we look at some of the ads that uh, Andrew Cuomo has put on television, is that he's trying to make more of a case that's for New York voters to sort of see that he does have a plan and that they can feel very comfortable voting for him. I mean, obviously, the vast majority of New Yorkers have already stated that they would vote for Andrew Cuomo. But his ads are looking a little more concrete in the sense that once I get to Albany as governor, here's a, a tentative plan, which I think uh, benefits Andrew Cuomo in the sense that he doesn't want people to think that he is running this campaign as a coronation and that it's completely in the bag and he actually doesn't need to try until November 2nd. So you don't think those ads maybe have voters thinking he's looking past the election? No, I think the ads are actually sort of setting up a scenario for Andrew Cuomo where he's trying to help New York voters sort of see that he he's taking the campaign and also the subsequent office very seriously. And moving on to what really has driven the election, the critical swing voters, if they haven't soured already on Republican Carl Palladino, are they just getting worn down by his antics that have kind of dominated the headlines for so long? Yeah, I mean, and I think they, I think they, uh, you know, they have been worn down. And, and you, know, you talk about the, the strategy that, that uh, Andrew Cuomo has sort of employed in this thing. It's, I think it's obviously, politically, it's been a very smart strategy. He's talking, uh, when he starts talking about, you know, getting tough on unions, for instance, when he's, you know, the sort of the message and the themes that he sounded in this campaign are, 
uh, are pretty surprising coming from a Democrat and are really surprising coming from the son of Mario Cuomo. I mean, when people think of Mario Cuomo, you know, they think of sort of, uh, you know, he was the voice of the old sort of uh, New Deal, great society consensus of the Democratic Party, the guy who, you know, who talked about, you know, how government was was sort of the answer. And and now you've got Andrew Cuomo, who's really trying to appeal to voters who are, who are feeling in a very anti-government mood this year. He's sort of positioning himself as the voice of, of sort of angry suburbanites. It's a political smart strategy because he walked into this campaign in good position to win and I think politically he just you know he, he wanted to make sure that the voters who under certain circumstances would actually vote Republican this year because they're so they're feeling so anxious they're feeling angry in a lot of cases you know could be comfortable with him and he's conveyed a message that uh, you know for those voters when they look at Carl Paladino and they get uh, they get very nervous they they look back at Andrew Cuomo and they and they can say okay good enough um, you know this this is uh, this is not necessarily Mario Cuomo Part 2. I don't think Mario Cuomo Part 2 would, would sell very well this year. Exactly. I think if uh, Andrew Cuomo was running against, say, uh, a Giuliani, we wouldn't hear any of this rhetoric about unions. He would actually really need to um, solidify his base, and I think his strategy would be completely different. But Andrew Cuomo pretty much knows that he's going to Albany uh, after November 2nd, so he can he can really reassure independent voters that he is not his dad 2.0. Can I, can I just add one thing to that, too? Um, I, I wonder if there's going to be a consequence to um, to this campaign strategy. It's been oh, yeah. very good for, for Andrew Cuomo, but you start looking at, uh, at the rest of the Demo- Democratic ticket in this state. Mm-hmm. Um, they need... Uh, help from the unions that Cuomo doesn't need in this campaign. And to the extent that Cuomo has, has delivered a message that's turned off the unions, that's failed to get sort of the core Democratic base, you know, excited about this campaign, it's not going to hurt Andrew Cuomo on Election Day. But you start looking at some of these other races down the ballot right. for, for, you know, other statewide offices, congressional seats, far closer races, there a, a lack of a motivated Democratic base can be an issue. I think this election cycle has really shown is that we need to look more down the ballot, right? I think oftentimes we're used to looking at sort of the top line on the ticket um, and then filling in whatever may come after the fact. But I completely agree with you, Steve. Uh, If union members sit out, Andrew Cuomo may, you know, he'll definitely get into Albany, possibly not by the margins he anticipated, but the names that are three, four, five lines down the ballot will, will definitely be heard. Now, let's stay on that political strategy for a second. There's a a New York Observer piece called The Site That Saved Andrew Cuomo. It then goes on to detail how WNYmedia.net, by exposing the inappropriate, racist, sexist emails forwarded and sent by Republican Carl Palladino, have hounded him months later. Professor Greer, do you think without those emails, Palladino would have been able to have a more significant impact on the race? No, I don't think so, because Palladino ultimately would have shown himself to be Carl Palladino. The emails just uh, sort of served as the appetizer, the entree to what what clearly he does and how he behaves. So that that was just the beginning. Keep in mind, after those emails, we also saw his confrontations with various reporters. Um, we saw illegitimate children um, and just gaffes and behavior that would turn off Democrats, Republicans, and independents. Um, So I think, yes, it's been distracting, definitely for the Palladino campaign and definitely for voters who really need and want to talk about economic and political and social issues uh, that New York and sort of the larger country is facing. But um, I think Carl Palladino came in on a wave 
that um, I actually think is is going to crash um, possibly after November 2nd, but it will crash. And we're, we're seeing sort of some of the cracks in that foundation. Steve, do you think that the emails kind of set the table for Palladino and once they actually came out, it was just kind of fitting into the narrative for every gaffe that he had on the campaign trail? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they came out, you know, so early um, in, in his campaign that it was something that, you know, every time, you know, Carl Palladino sort of opened his mouth and said something provocative or, or did something provocative, it was a great reference point for people. So it defined him in that sense. But, you know, I, I really think the story with Palladino, when, when you look at this campaign, Carl Palladino, in a way, is a creation of Andrew Cuomo. Because when you look way back at it, when this race started to take shape, and you go back to when Elliot Spitzer resigned and David Patterson took over, and, and at that point, and, and when David Patterson started to really struggle and his poll number started to drop. You know, Republicans were, were, were looking at this race with a lot of anticipation, but, but it hinged on one thing. It hinged on David Patterson still being the Democratic candidate in 2010. And the thought being, you know, if you have this unelected, unpopular governor whose poll ratings are, are somewhere in the 30, you know, 40 percent range, and you've got the bad economy and you've got the national Republican climate that we have, you know, under those circumstances, a Republican can go in there, beat David Patterson and win the governorship. But they were, you know, very concerned that, you know, Patterson was going to struggle so much that Andrew Cuomo had used the attorney general's office so skillfully to, to, to sort of rehabilitate his image that Patterson's poll ratings would fall so low that the party would sort of turn on him and bring Andrew Cuomo in. And I think that's what you saw. Rudy Giuliani, you know, I think clearly wanted to run for governor. Um, and he spent most of last year looking to do it. But what he was waiting for, the reason he was so hesitant, you know, he was trying to see what was going to happen with the whole Cuomo-Patterson situation. And the minute it finally became clear to Giuliani that, that Patterson was not going to be the Democratic candidate and that Andrew Cuomo would be, that's when Giuliani got out. And when that became clear to the rest of the party, um, both, the, both the Republican Party's leaders, and, and the Republican Party base, I think the Republican Party just basically lost interest in, in, in putting up a real fight in, in the gubernatorial race this year. And, and that's why a guy like Carl, Carl Palladino was sort of able to, to seize the, the resulting vacuum um, running against Rick Lazio in, in the primary. <laughs> um, you know, there wasn't much energy. There wasn't much enthusiasm for Rick Lazio. Everybody knew if he was nominated, he was just going to get his clock cleaned. And I think a lot of Republican primary voters, you know, come September 14th, kind of looked at it and they, they saw Carl Palladino and they said, well, you know, this guy's kind of a live wire. It's one way of looking at it. So, you know, why not? I mean, if we nominate Lazio, we know what's going to happen. We'll probably lose with Palladino, but, you know, what the heck? I, I really think that was sort of the attitude of the Republican primary voters, um, and, and that attitude can be traced, you know, back to the presence of, uh, of Andrew Cuomo. If, if, if David Patterson had somehow held off Andrew Cuomo, um, then, yeah, I think this would be a, obviously a totally different race right now, and the Republicans might actually be in position to win it. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Ben Allen, speaking with Professor Christina Greer of Fordham University Lincoln Center and Steve Kornacki, news editor on Salon.com. And Steve Kornacki, you bring that up in your latest commentary on CapitalNewYork.com called A Very Special Episode Brought to You by Andrew Cuomo. And in it, I just want to quote from it because you say the attorney general's poll numbers were and still are high enough to keep the GOP establishment from mounting a real fight for the governorship. The mission was so obviously doomed from the outset that it was impossible for party leaders to attract candidates and generate excitement among activists. But you close that Democrat Andrew Cuomo's ride won't last as it has through this election. Why do you think that? 
Well, it's, it's his numbers are so artificially high right now. I mean, we've seen mm-hmm. with with Andrew Cuomo, and I think we saw with Elliot Spitzer before, and then we've seen with their attorney generals uh, in other states. It's relatively easy to use that office to get high poll numbers because you're sort of you're a visible public figure, but you're not really attached to the to the legislature. You're not necessarily the person that you know when people are feeling uneasy about their lives and they start thinking of politicians. You're not the one that they necessarily blame for it. You know, you can get headlines, you know, prosecuting and going after people that that everybody agrees, you know, somebody should be going after and somebody should be prosecuting. So Andrew Cuomo, like Elliot Spitzer before him, was able to really boost his poll numbers in that job. And, and, you know, because he's not really had serious opposition in this race, he was able to, you know, wait till uh, David Patterson got out of the way uh, in the primary and and then coast uncontested in the primary. And, and, you know, he's had the sort of sideshow of of Carl Palladino to deal with in in the general election. Um, where, if anything, Carl Paladino at times has made Andrew Cuomo an even more sympathetic figure. So it, it, he's really not had a, a traditional campaign where, where he gets roughed up at all. But uh, like Spitzer before him, the minute he gets to Albany, and, and especially if he's serious about pursuing this, this uh, sort of get-tough-on-unions approach that he's, that he's outlining, things are going to turn really fast. I mean, he talked about this in an, in an interview with the New York Times earlier this week. He, says, uh, he said he's aware that you know, the first time you submit your budget, all the unions, all the interest groups are going to spend $10 million on, on ads calling you every name in the book. Uh, and, and I assume that same thing is going to happen with Andrew Cuomo. And, and when that starts happening, then we start seeing those poll numbers drop. I mean, just, just remember, before the, the scandal ever happened with Elliot Spitzer, um, how far and how fast his poll numbers dropped because they were so artificially high to begin with. Now, Professor Greer, I want to kind of come back and kind of talk about one of the messages that we've heard time and time again from these candidates, and that is that they will clean up Albany with aggressive measures. The message that we've heard from them is that Andrew Cuomo has said he'll create a commission with subpoena power. Carl Paladino says he'll hire a special prosecutor. Does this message resonate with voters more so than any other message? Because we always hear that, you know, if you say the same thing over and over again, eventually voters get tired of it. Do you think this message is kind of different from, you know, the cookie-cutter explanation I think voters, New York voters, definitely care about it just because Albany is such a mess right now and they're in such a crisis, right? Um, the interesting thing about voters is that as an institution, they don't like Albany, yet and still they pretty much uh, elect their representatives to go back to Albany every two <laughs> two to four years. Um So I, I think that Andrew Cuomo is running on cleaning up Albany because in in all honesty, he must clean up Albany. I mean, the amount of corruption and disorganization and sort of infighting that exists is not sustainable. I mean, New York State used to be a state that produced, you know, presidents, <laughs> that produced, you know, really great governance that other states looked toward. Um, and right now, the, the fiscal corruption at some of the highest levels, right, um, needs to come to a close. So I think that at least for this particular campaign period, this is a a great piece to run on. And he'll have some amount of time to run on it. But just like Steve said, I mean, these the the wave that he'll arrive in Albany on is is short lasting. I mean, once he has inherited the problem, he has enough time. He has a limited amount of time to say, you know, we need to clean it up before he is identified with being the problem. How does he make that transition from being candidate Andrew Cuomo to being 
office holder, Andrew Cuomo. Right. I mean, this is the million dollar question, right, that we see sort of President Barack Obama struggling with. We see all elected officials struggling with. And so I think, you know, when he goes in and he starts hiring and firing, essentially, um, and at least giving the appearance that he's cleaning up Albany by removing particular people that he has the power to remove, changing particular systems, and really figuring out how it is that, um, as a Democratic governor, he'll work with the budget and those who control or help control the budget um, and moving it in possibly a more centrist direction or whatever direction he he feels uh, fit to make sure that he's also not able to just clean up Albany, but articulate to the voters and communicate to them, which we've seen other administrations really struggle with, to communicate to the voters why it is he's making particular um, cuts and why it is he's making particular uh, decisions. Now, Steve, I want to bring you back in here because I wonder how would Andrew Cuomo have handled the debate if it had ever happened in a one-on-one setting? Do you get the sense that Yes, this has been an interesting election season because of Carl Palladino, but Cuomo never really felt a push. Yeah, and you know the the interesting thing about the, about the the reason there wasn't you know a one on one debate was oddly that was Carl Palladino's call. Um, it was it was the Palladino camp um, that actually insisted all of the candidates uh, be present. I, I think the the explanation for that supposedly was you know that they felt Palladino might not be seasoned enough to go one-on-one with somebody, I guess, as savvy as Andrew Cuomo or, you know, sort of as, uh, you know, a veteran politician like uh, Andrew Cuomo. But, I mean, when you're when you're the challenger like Carl Palladino and you're running so far behind, um, you know, you need to roll the dice like that. You need to try to get that one-on-one and you need to try to force him into some kind of uncomfortable situation. Although I, I would just say, I mean, I do get the sense, and I think it's pretty clear watching watching Carl Palladino, whether it's in interviews, whether it's, you know, at campaign events, whether it's in confrontations with reporters, um, it, it's pretty easy to see a situation where if he'd had a one-on-one debate with Cuomo where, uh, you know, Cuomo it, it could have been instructed, you know, to sort of keep his calm, and it would have been uh, it would have been Carl Palladino who sort of comes unhinged. But you never know with, with all the sort of bombs that Carl Palladino throws, maybe there would have been a moment where he just got Andrew Cuomo to, to kind of lose his, uh, lose his temper for a second um, and, and, and say something uh, that he might later regret. I mean, I, I suppose I could see that happening. It, it, it's interesting as the, um, as the seven-way debate was, and as interesting as the rent is too damn high party um, has been, um, it, I think it might have even been, uh, it, it, it might have been more fun to watch a one-on-one debate. I'd agree with that. Now, the rent is too damn high party, of course, that Jimmy McMullen is their gubernatorial candidate, and he obviously took control of that debate by really captivating the audience, getting the people behind him, but he really doesn't have a shot. Just wanted to clear that up. I'm Ben Allen on 90.7 WFUV, discussing local elections just a few days away. Coming up, we'll talk about some close congressional races in the area, as well as Connecticut Senate contests with our guests. Fordham political science professor Christina Greer and Salon.com news editor Steve Kornacki. Stay with us. More Fordham Conversations is ahead. Do you remember playing your first instrument in school? Maybe it was a flute, a trumpet, the drums, or perhaps the piano. Hi, I'm George Bodarki. Coming up on this morning's Cityscape as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign, we're focusing our attention on music education, including the advocacy of Broadway legend Carol Channing and Bon Jovi keyboardist David Bryan. That's Cityscape this morning at 7.30, right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org.
Let's move on to that attorney general race because Democrat Eric Schneiderman is in the lead over Republican nominee Dan Donovan. Donovan, of course, the Staten Island district attorney. Steve, does Donovan gain credibility in his attacks when Mayor Michael Bloomberg not only appears in a Donovan ad on top of his endorsement, but also attacks Schneiderman on a pretty regular basis? I think so. In, in, in one sense, it's any kind of attention you get, especially from an endorsement like Michael Bloomberg, sort of gets to the point Christina was making there about people don't even don't tend to notice these races, a race like attorney general or especially a race like you know controller even further down the ballot. So when a guy like Bloomberg gets involved, people start to notice who, who otherwise might not. People hear the Bloomberg name, see his connection to Donovan, and that's something that might stick in their mind when they get into the voting booth. I mean, I, I really think uh, when you start talking about an attorney general's race, I mean, you really have to talk about about what is the what is the sort of broader political climate that's at work this year? Because the attorney general's race is is one where the candidates are sort of both at the mercy of the political climate. Um, and this is one of those years. This is one of those very rare years in New York where um, nationally and, and even within the state, there voters who who for the last decade and a half really have basically refused to vote for Republicans, except in a, in a few very sort of isolated uh, instances, are receptive to the Republican Party simply because the Democrats control uh, everything in Washington uh, and a lot in Albany. And, you know, unemployment is near 10 percent and economic anxiety is very high. And in that climate, they look to the Republican Party um, simply as a vehicle of protest. Um, they go to the polls simply wanting to express their, their frustration, um, their disappointment, whatever the term you want to use, with the ruling Democratic Party. Um, and when you get down the ballot to, to races that people haven't followed very closely with, with candidates they really haven't heard of, that's where that can really um, that can really play a role. And that's why, you know, a race like this attorney general's race, I think if you had been dealing with the political climate of 2008 or 2006, which was very favorable to Democrats, the Schneiderman would probably be ahead by about 20 points right now. Um, but because it's 2010 and because it's such a strongly anti-democratic year, even even in New York, it puts Dan Donovan within striking distance. And, and, and depending on exactly what the sort of composition of the electorate is next Tuesday, it gives him an opportunity maybe, maybe to win, uh, even among voters who, who really haven't heard of him. Also, Americans like divided government. Um, and we've found that this is why midterm elections are always so exciting, because Americans normally um, will sort of reject the party in power and and sort of create divided government themselves, right, on sort of local and national levels. So, I mean, this is this is exactly what Steve said. If this were 2008, I don't think Eric Schneiderman would have to worry about much of anything. But it's not. I mean, it's a midterm election. And so there's a very, very good chance that Dan Donovan um, could could become attorney general. And I think also what confuses voters is when you have Ed Koch in an ad for Dan Donovan. Um, so hardcore Democrats who sort of think of Ed Koch as, you know, the quintessential Democratic mayor um, in revisionist history, if you see him in an ad, then that's confusing left-leaning Democratic voters as well. Now, Steve, I just want to jump back to you because I want to ask you about the strategy for Republican Dan Donovan. He's gone dark on ads uh, over the last week, and then he started to put together a 10-day push over the airwaves. Is that a good move? 
Yeah, I mean, and I think you're looking at a situation, too, where, where campaigns have to make strategic judgments when they have limited, you know, financial resources, and, and you're looking at what, uh, you know, running a, a, an aggressive media campaign in, in New York, uh, where it can be expensive and where the state's so spread out, can be very costly. So, you know, you kind of go for the last 10 days, the idea that being that that's when people, uh, that's when voters really start tuning in. Um, a lot of the sort of swing voters, the casual voters, whatever you want to call them, really start tuning in, and, and that's when you're going to have going to have the most impact. And Professor Greer, we've talked about this before, as Election Day nears, races tighten. It's a common thing Mm -hmm. we see in politics. But how can you explain what's happened in upstate New York, where the 20th congressional districts flipped from a 15-point lead for the Democratic incumbent Scott Murphy to a 9-point lead and the latest Siena University poll for Republican Chris Gibson? Is this really a true result, or is this some type of polling error? Uh, as someone who works on quantitative methods, I would definitely think that, that we need to look very closely at the the polling, um, how it was done, when it was done, who it was done with, um, the margins of error as well. But uh, there may be other uh, variables going on in the particular district. I mean, it could be that Chris Gibson is pressing the flesh and really utilizing his volunteers you know, uh, his strategy may be effective. I haven't been following that race terribly closely, but it could be sort of more of a grassroots uh, motivating factor that's that's helping these numbers turn. Um, and maybe the people in the 20th district are just, they've already made up their minds and whomever was polled is, is spoken for the 20th. I would still follow the race, though. And in the congressional races, there's another tight one in New York's 19th, Steve, Incumbent Democrat John Hall slid into the reliably Republican district in 2006, but is getting a strong challenge from Republican Nan Hayworth. Now, the Daily Coast wrote an article about this, and I want to quote from it because they say the problem in New York's 19th is that Obama voters have soured on him to a much greater extent than they have nationally. Only 75% of his supporters still approve of the job he's doing, and his loss of support is rubbing off on Hall. With the Obama voters who now disapprove of or ambivalent toward him, Nan Hayworth has a 56-28 lead. Nationally, our last poll still found 86% of Obama voters approving of him, so this is an unusually disenchanted district. Do you agree with that, or where do you stand on that exact issue? Because... There's been a lot of talk about how some districts are really outliers here. Is the 19th an outlier? I, you know, I don't really think so because I think you have to put this in some sort of recent historical perspective. Um, and, and to me, to sort of understand what's happening in, in congressional races in New York and, and nationally in 2010, um, you have to understand what happened, first of all, in 1994, which is the last time the Republicans had a year like this, um, where nationally they, they won 54 House seats. They picked up control of the, of the House for the first time in 40 years. It was the Gingrich Republican Revolution in New York State. Um, coming into this election now, you know, there are only two Republicans in the entire uh, House delegation in this state. There are there are 29 districts right now. There are only 28 incumbent House members because of, of Eric Massa's resignation earlier this year, and there are only two Republicans. That's amazing. When you, when you go back just to the mid 1990s, the numbers were almost even, um, and that's a testament, I think, to, to the shift of 1994 and that the 2000 brought about. But something fundamental changed with 2008, and that was that you know for the first time since before the 94 election, the Democrats once again controlled everything in Washington. 
that created a situation where where the Republican Party that was off limits to these voters for so long um, suddenly became their only option in terms of expressing protest. Let's close with some predictions. Steve, I want to start with you. How likely is a sweep by Democrats of the three big ticket New York statewide offices, the governor, attorney general and controller? I think it's I think there's a, a decent chance, but I just I, I'd say I have a feeling that between those uh, between AG and controller, uh, Republicans are going to pick up one of them. Um, I, I think if there were more attention, more individual attention uh, focused on the controller race, that one probably would go. It's just a question. I think the ingredients are there for the Republicans to win that race if people are paying attention to it. Um, it's just a question of, of you know the races so far down ballot, how many people really are paying attention to it. Um, and, and as I said, the AG's race. I think, I think Schneiderman. I would, if I had to bet on it, I put, would put my money on him right now. Um, but again, that's within striking distance uh, for the Republicans. I, I, I just have a feeling between those two that they'll that they'll pull one of them off. Now, Professor Greer, I mean, do you think that Democrat Tom DiNapoli can hold on to his seat over Republican Harry Wilson in the Comptroller race? I think it's going to come down to turnout. If Democrats really actually turn out in mass, um, and what Dinopoli has going for him is that unions do love him, um, sort of people upstate absolutely love him. Um, so if Democrats decide to turn out and they realize that even though it looks as though Andrew Cuomo is walking into his new mansion in Albany, they still need to come out and give him the numbers. And if Democrats are just going to vote straight down the party line, then it's looking much better for Schneiderman and Dinopoli. Um, if Democrats decide to stay home, you know, obviously they always say Democrats pray for good weather. So if there's good weather on Tuesday and the Democrats come out, it's great. But if Democrats decide to stay home, then I agree with Steve. There's, we might see two Democrats um, out of the three, uh, but there's no guarantee. All right, Steve Kornacki, news editor of Salon.com. Thanks a lot for joining us here on Fordham Conversations. No, thanks for having me. And Professor Christina Greer, of course, professor of political science at Fordham University Lincoln Center. Professor Greer, thanks for being here on Fordham Conversations. Always a pleasure. This has been Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. You can hear Fordham Conversations every Saturday at 7 a.m. You can also friend us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and catch up on past shows with our weekly podcast. Stay with us. George Bodarkey and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Ben Allen.